Hypocrites, Deficient in the Duty of Prayer, a Sermon by Jonathan Edwards, 1703-1758. Job 27, verse 10, Will he always call upon God? Concerning these words, I would observe, number one, who it is that is here spoken of, the hypocrite. As you may see, if you take the two preceding verses with the verse of the text, for what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he hath gain when God taketh away his soul? Will God hear his cry when trouble cometh upon him? Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call upon God? Job's three friends in their speeches to him insisted much upon it that he was a hypocrite. But Job, in this chapter, asserts his sincerity and integrity, and shows how different his own behavior had been from that of hypocrites. Particularly, he declares his steadfast and immovable resolution of persevering and holding out in the ways of religion and righteousness to the end, as you may see in the six first verses. In the text, he shows how contrary to this steadfastness and perseverance the character of the hypocrite is, who is not wont thus to hold out in religion. Number two, we may observe what duty of religion it is with respect to which the hypocrite is deciphered in the text, and that is the duty of prayer or calling upon God. Number three, here is something supposed of the hypocrite relating to this duty, that he may continue in it for a while. He may call upon God for a season. Number four, something asserted that is not the manner of hypocrites to continue always in this duty. Will he always call upon God? It is in the form of an interrogation, but the words have the force of a strong assertion that however the hypocrite may call upon God for a season, yet he will not always continue in it. Doctrine. However hypocrites may continue for a season in the duty of prayer, yet it is their manner after a while in a great measure to leave off. In speaking upon this doctrine, I shall show, number one, how hypocrites often continue for a season to call upon God. Number two, how it is in their manner after a while in a great measure to leave off the practice of this duty. Number three, give some reasons why this is the manner of hypocrites. Number one, I would show how hypocrites often continue for a season in the duty of prayer. Number one, they do so for a while after they have received common illuminations and affections. While they are under awakenings, they may through fear of hell call upon God and attend very constantly upon the duty of secret prayer. And after they have had some melting affections, having their hearts much moved with the goodness of God or with some affecting encouragements and false joy and comfort, while these impressions last, they continue to call upon God in the duty of secret prayer. Number two, after they have obtained a hope and have made a profession of their good estate, they often continue for a while in the duty of secret prayer. For a while they are affected with their hope. They think that God hath delivered them out of a natural condition and given them an interest in Christ, thus introducing them into a state of safety from that eternal misery which they lately feared. With this supposed kindness of God to them, they are much affected and often find in themselves for a while a kind of love to God, excited by His supposed love to them. Now, while this affection towards God continues, the duties of religion seem pleasant to them. 
It is even with some delight that they approach to God in their closets. And for the present it may be they think of no other than continuing to call upon God as long as they live. Yea, they may continue in the duty of secret prayer for a while after the liveliness of their affections is past through the influence of their former intentions. They intended to continue seeking God always, and now suddenly to leave off would be too shocking to their own minds and the force of their own preconceived notions that godly persons continue in religion may have some effect. Therefore, though they have no love to the duty of prayer, and begin to grow weary of it, yet as they love their own hope, they are somewhat backward to take a course which will prove it to be a false hope, and so deprive them of it. If they should all at once bear the sign of a false hope, they would scare themselves. Their hope is dear to them, and it would frighten to see any plain evidence that it is not true. Hence, for a considerable time after the force of their illuminations and affections is over, and after they hate the duty of prayer and would be glad to have done with it, if they could without showing themselves to be hypocrites, they hold up a kind of attendance upon the duty of secret prayer. This may keep up the outside of religion in them for a good while, and occasion it to be somewhat slowly that they are brought to neglect it. They must not leave off suddenly, because that would be too great a shock to their false peace. But they must come gradually to it, as they find their consciences can bear it, and as they can find out devices and solves to cover the matter, and make their so doing consistent in their own opinion with the truth of their hope. But, number two, it is the manner of hypocrites, after a while and a great measure, to leave off the practice of this duty. We are often taught that the seeming goodness and piety of hypocrites is not of a lasting and persevering nature. It is so with respect to their practice of the duty of prayer in particular, and especially of secret prayer. They can omit this duty, and their omission of it not be taken notice of by others who know what profession they have made, so that a regard to their own reputation doth not oblige them still to practice it. If others saw how they neglect it, it would exceedingly shock their charity towards them. But their neglect doth not fall under their observation, at least not under the observation of many. Therefore they may omit this duty and still have the credit of being converted persons. Men of this character can come to a neglect of secret prayer by degrees without shocking their peace. For though indeed for a converted person to live in a great measure without secret prayer is very wide of the notion they once had of a true convert, yet they find means by degrees to alter their notions and to bring their principles to suit with their inclinations, and at length they come to a notion that a man may be a convert and yet live very much in neglect of this duty. In time they can bring all things to suit well together, as a hope of heaven, and an indulgence of sloth, gratifying carnal appetites, and living in a great measure of a prayerless life. They cannot, indeed, suddenly make these things agree. It must be a work of time, and a length of time will affect it. By degrees they find out ways to guard and defend their consciences against those powerful enemies, so that those enemies and a quiet, secure conscience can at length dwell together. Whereas it is asserted in the doctrine that it is a manner of hypocrites after a while in a great measure to leave off this duty, I would observe to you, number one, 
that it is not intended, but that they may commonly continue to the end of life in an external attendance on prayer with others. They may commonly be present at public prayers in the congregation and also at family prayer. This in such places of light as this is, men commonly do before they are so much as awakened. Many vicious persons, who make no pretense to serious religion, commonly attend public prayers in the congregation, and also more private prayers in the families in which they live, unless it be when carnal designs interfere, or when their useful pleasures and diversions in their vain company call them. And then they make no conscience of attending family prayer. Otherwise they may continue to attend upon prayer as long as they live, and yet may be truly said not to call upon God. For such prayer in the manner of it is not their own. They are present only for the sake of their credit, or in compliance with others. They may be present at these prayers, and yet have no proper prayer of their own. Many of those concerning whom it may be said, as in Job 15, verse 4, that they cast off fear and restrain prayer before God, are yet frequently present at family and public prayers. Number two, but they in a great measure leave off the practice of secret prayer. They come to this pass by degrees. At first they begin to be careless about it, under some particular temptations, because they have been out in young company, or have been taken up very much with worldly business. They omit it once. After that they more easily omit it again. Thus it presently becomes a frequent thing with them to omit it, and after a while it comes to that pass that they seldom attend it. Perhaps they attend it on Sabbath days, and sometimes on other days. But they have ceased to make it a constant practice daily to retire to worship God alone and to seek His face in secret places. They sometimes do a little to quiet conscience and just to keep alive their old hope, because it would be shocking to them, even after all their subtle dealing with their consciences, to call themselves converts and yet totally to live without prayer. Yet the practice of secret prayer they have in a great measure left off. I come now, number three to the reasons why this is a matter of hypocrites. Number one, hypocrites never have had the spirit of prayer. They may have been stirred up to the external performances of this duty, and that with a great deal of earnestness and affection, and yet always have been destitute of the true spirit of prayer. The spirit of prayer is a holy spirit, a gracious spirit, we read of the spirit of grace and supplication, Zechariah 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. Wherever there is a true spirit of supplication, there is a spirit of grace. The true spirit of prayer is no other than God's own spirit dwelling in the hearts of the saints. And as this spirit comes from God, so doth it naturally tend to God in holy breathings and pantings. It naturally leads to God to converse with him by prayer. Therefore the Spirit is said to make intercession for the saints with groanings which cannot be uttered. Romans 8, verse 26. The Spirit of God makes intercession for them, as it is that Spirit which in some respect indicts their prayers and leads them to pour out their souls before God. Therefore the saints are said to worship God in the Spirit. Philippians 3, verse 3. We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. In John 4:23, The true worshippers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
The truly godly have the spirit of adoption, the spirit of a child to which it is natural to go to God and call upon Him, crying to Him as to a father. But hypocrites have nothing of the spirit of adoption. They have not the spirit of children, for this is a gracious and holy spirit, given only in a real work of regeneration. Therefore it is often mentioned as a part of the distinguishing character of the godly that they call upon God. Psalm 114, verses 18 and 19, The Lord is nigh to them that call upon Him, to all that call upon Him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear Him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. Job 2, verse 32, It shall come to pass that whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is natural to one who is truly born from above to pray to God and to pour out his soul in holy supplications before his heavenly Father. This is as natural to the new nature and life as breathing is to the nature and life of the body. But hypocrites have not this new nature. Those illuminations and affections which they had went away and left no change of nature. Therefore prayer naturally dies away in them, having no foundation laid in the nature of the soul. It is maintained a while only by a certain force put upon nature. But force is not constant, and as that declines, nature will take place again. The spirit of a true convert is the spirit of true love to God, and that naturally inclines the soul to those duties wherein it is conversant with God and makes it to delight in approaching Him. But a hypocrite hath no such spirit. He is left under the reigning power of enmity against God, which naturally inclines him to shun his presence. The spirit of a true convert is the spirit of faith and reliance on the power, wisdom, and mercy of God, and such a spirit is naturally expressed in prayer. True prayer is nothing else but faith expressed. Hence we read of the prayer of faith, James 5, verse 15. True Christian prayer is a faith and reliance of the soul breathed forth in words. But a hypocrite is without the spirit of faith. He hath no true reliance or dependence on God, but is really self-dependent. As to those common convictions and affections which the hypocrite had which made him keep up the duty of prayer for a while, they not reach in the bottom of the heart, nor being accompanied with any change of nature, a little thing extinguishes them. The cares of the world commonly choke and suffocate them, and often the pleasures and vanities of youth totally put an end to them, and with them ends their constant practice of the duty of prayer. Number two, when a hypocrite has had his false conversion, his wants are in his sense of things already supplied. His desires are already answered, and so he finds no further business at the throne of grace. He never was sensible that he had any other needs but a need of being saved from hell. And now that he is converted, as he thinks, that need is supplied. Why then should he still go on to resort to the throne of grace with earnest requests? He is out of danger. All that he was afraid of is removed. He has got enough to carry him to heaven, and what more should he desire? While under awakenings, he had this to stir him up to go to God in prayer, that he was in continual fear of hell. This put him upon crying to God for mercy. But since in his own opinion he is converted, he hath no further business about which to go to God. And although he may keep up the duty of prayer in the outward form a little while, for fear of spoiling his hope, yet he will find it a dull business to continue it without necessity. And so by degrees he will let drop the practice. The work of the hypocrite is done when he is converted, and therefore he standeth in no further need of help. 
but it is far otherwise with the true convert. His work is not done, but he finds still a great work to do, and great wants to be supplied. He sees himself still to be a poor, empty, helpless creature, and that he still stands in great and continual need of God's help. He is sensible that without God he can do nothing. A false conversion makes a man in his own eyes self-sufficient, he saith. He is rich and increased with goods, and hath need of nothing, and knoweth not that he is wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. But after a true conversion, the soul remains sensible of its own impotence and emptiness, as it is in itself, and its sense of it is rather increased than diminished. It is still sensible of its universal dependence on God for everything. A true convert is sensible that his grace is very imperfect, and he is very far from having all that he desires. Instead of that, by conversion are begotten in him new desires which he never had before. He now finds in him holy appetites, a hungering and thirsting after righteousness, a longing after more acquaintance and communion with God, so that he has business enough still at the throne of grace. Yea, his business there, instead of being diminished, is rather increased. Number three, the hope which the hypocrite hath of his good estate takes off the force that the command of God before had upon his conscience, so that now he dares neglect so plain a duty. The command which requires the practice of the duty of prayer is exceeding plain. Matthew 26, verse 41, Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. Ephesians 6, verse 18, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Matthew 6, verse 6, When thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, pray to the Father which is in secret. As long as the hypocrite was in his own apprehension and continual danger of hell, he durst not disobey these commands. But since he is, as he thinks, safe from hell, he has grown bold. He dares to live in the neglect of the plainest command in the Bible. Number four, it is the manner of hypocrites, after a while, to return to sinful practices, which will tend to keep them from praying. While they were under convictions, they reformed their lives and walked very exactly. This reformation continues after their supposed conversion, while they are much affected with hope and false comfort. But as these things die away, their old lusts revive, and by degrees they return like the dog to his vomit and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. They return to their sensual, worldly, proud, and contentious practices as before. And no wonder this makes them forsake their closets. Sinning and praying agree not well together. If a man be constant in the duty of secret prayer, it will tend to restrain him from willful sinning. So, on the other hand, if he allow himself in sinful practices, it will restrain him from praying. It will give quite another turn to his mind, so that he will have no disposition to the practice of such a duty. It will be contrary to him. A man who knows that he lives in sin against God will not be inclined to come daily into the presence of God, but will rather be inclined to fly from his presence as Adam, when he had eaten of the forbidden fruit, ran away from God, and hid himself among the trees of the garden. To keep up the duty of prayer after he hath given loose to his lust would tend very much to disquiet a man's conscience, and would give advantage to his conscience to testify aloud against him. If he should come from his wickedness into the presence of God, immediately to speak to him, his conscience would, as it were, fly in his face. 
Therefore, hypocrites, as they by degrees admit their wicked practices, exclude prayer. Number five, hypocrites never counted the cost of perseverance in seeking God and of following Him to the end of life. To continue instant in prayer with all perseverance to the end of life requires much care, watchfulness, and labor. For much opposition is made to it by the flesh, the world, and the devil. The Christians meet with many temptations to forsake this practice. He that would persevere in this duty must be laborious in religion in general. But hypocrites never count the cost of such labor. In other words, they never were prepared in the disposition of their minds to give their lives to the service of God and to the duties of religion. It is therefore no great wonder they are weary and give up after they have continued for a while as their affections are gone and they find that prayer to them grows irksome and tedious. Number six, hypocrites have no interest in those gracious promises which God made to his people, of those spiritual supplies which are needful in order to uphold them in the way of their duty to the end. God hath promised to true saints that they shall not forsake him. Jeremiah 32, verse 40, I will put my fear into their hearts, that they shall not depart from me. He has promised that he will keep them in the way of their duty. For Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, and the God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. But hypocrites have no interest in these and such like promises, and therefore are liable to fall away. If God do not uphold men, there is no dependence on their steadfastness. If the Spirit of God depart from them, they will soon become careless and profane, and there will be an end to their seeming devotion and piety. The application may be in a use of exhortation in two branches. Number one, I would exhort those who have entertained a hope of their being true converts, and who since their supposed conversion have left off the duty of secret prayer, and ordinarily allow themselves in the omission of it, to throw away their hope. If you have left off calling upon God, it is time for you to leave off hoping and flattering yourselves with an imagination that you are the children of God. Probably it will be a very difficult thing for you to do this. It is hard for a man to let go a hope of heaven, on which he has once allowed himself to lay hold, and which he hath retained for a considerable time. True conversion is a rare thing, but that men should be brought off from a false hope of conversion after they are once settled and established in it, and have continued in it for some time, is much more rare. Those things in men which, if known, would be sufficient to convince others that they are hypocrites, will not convince themselves. And those things which would be sufficient to convince them concerning others will not be sufficient to convince them concerning themselves. They can make larger allowances for themselves than they can for others. They can find out ways to solve objections against their own hope when they can find none in the like case for their neighbor. But if your case be such as is spoken of in the doctrine, it is surely time for you to seek a better hope and another work of God's Spirit than ever you have yet experienced, something more thorough and effectual. When you find by experience that the seed which was sown in your hearts, though at first it sprang up and seemed flourishing, is withering away, is by the heat of the sun, or is choked as with thorns, 
This shows in what sort of ground the seed was sown, that it is either stony or thorny ground, and that therefore it is necessary you should pass through another change, whereby your heart may become good ground, which shall bring forth fruit with patience. Insist not on that as a reason why you should not throw away your hope that you had the judgment of others, that the change of which you were the subject of was right. It is a small matter to be judged of man's judgment, whether you be approved or condemned, and whether it be by minister or people, wise or unwise. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3. It is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. If your goodness have proved to be as a morning cloud and early dew, if you be one of those who have forsaken God and left off calling upon His name, you have the judgment and sentence of God and the Scriptures against you, which is a thousand times more than to have the judgment of all the wise and godly men and ministers in the world in your favor. Others, from your account of things, may have been obliged to have charity for you, and to think that, provided you were not mistaken, and in your account did not misrepresent things, or express them by wrong terms, you were really converted." But what a miserable foundation is this upon which to build a hope as to your eternal state. Here I request your attention to a few things in particular which I have to say to you concerning your hope. Number one, why will you retain that hope which by evident experience will you find poisons you? Is it reasonable to think that a holy hope, a hope that is from heaven, would have such an influence? No, surely. Nothing of such a malignant influence comes from that world of purity and glory. No poison groweth in the paradise of God. The same hope which leads men to sin in this world will lead to hell hereafter. Why, therefore, will you retain such a hope of which your own experience shows you the ill tendency and that it encourages to lead a wicked life? For certainly that life is a wicked life wherein you live in the neglect of so well-known a duty as that of secret prayer, and in the disobedience of so plain a command of God as that by which the duty is enjoined, and is not a way of disobedience to God a way to hell? If your own experience of the nature and tendency of your hope will not convince you of the falseness of it, what will? Are you resolved to retain your hope? Let it prove ever so unsound and hurtful? Will you hold it fast till you go to hell with it? Many men cling to a false hope and embrace it so closely that they never let it go till the flames of hell cause their arms to unclench and let go their hold. Consider how you will answer it at the day of judgment when God shall call you to an account for your folly in resting in such a hope. Will it be a sufficient answer for you to say that you had the charity of others, and that they thought your conversion was right? Certainly it is foolish for men to imagine that God had no more wisdom, or could contrive no other way of bestowing comfort and hope of eternal life, than one which should encourage men to forsake Him. Hypocrites Deficient in the Duty of Prayer By Jonathan Edwards Sermon 2. Will he always call upon God? From these words our doctrine was, that however hypocrites may continue for a season in the duty of prayer, yet it is their manner after a while in a great measure to leave it off. This was our subject in the preceding discourse, in which, after having shown how hypocrites often continue for a season to call upon God, how it is their manner after a while in a great measure to leave it off, 
And having given the reasons why this is their manner, I come at length to make application, which I propose to do in use of exhortation, in two branches. And first to exhort those who entertain a hope of their good estate, and yet live in the neglect of secret prayer to reject their hope. One particular consideration I have already laid before men of this character, to the end just mentioned, and now I proceed to say to them, number two, how is your conduct consistent with loving God above all? If you have not a spirit to love God above your dearest earthly friends and your most pleasant earthly enjoyments, the scriptures are very plain and full in it that you are not true Christians. But if you had indeed such a spirit, would you thus grow weary of the practice of drawing near to him and become habitually so averse to it as in a great measure to cast off so plain a duty which is so much the life of a child of God? It is the nature of love to be averse to absence and to love a near access to those whom we love. We love to be with them. We delight to come often to them and to have much conversation with them. But when a person who hath heretofore been wont to converse freely with another by degrees forsakes him, grows strange and converses with him but little, and that although the other be importunate with him for the continuance of their former intimacy, this plainly shows the coldness of his heart towards him. The neglect of the duty of prayer seems to be inconsistent with supreme love to God, also upon another account, and that is that it is against the will of God so plainly revealed. True love to God seeks to please Him in everything and universally to conform to His will. Number three, your thus restraining prayer before God is not only inconsistent with the love, but also with the fear of God. It is an argument that you cast off fear, as is manifest by that text, Job 15, verse 4. Yea, thou castest off fear, and restrainest prayer before God. While you thus live in the transgression of so plain a command of God, you evidently show that there is no fear of God before your eyes. Psalm 36, verse 1. The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. Number four, consider how living in such a neglect is consistent with leading a holy life. We are abundantly instructed in Scripture that true Christians do lead a holy life, that without holiness no man shall see the Lord, Hebrews 12, verse 14, and that everyone that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as Christ is pure, 1 John 3, verse 3. In Proverbs 16, verse 17, it is said, The highway of the upright is to depart from evil, in other words, a common beaten road in which all the godly travel. To the like purpose is Isaiah 35, verse 8. A highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, those redeemed persons spoken of in the foregoing verses. It is spoken of in Romans 8, verse 1, as the character of all believers that they walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. But how is a life in a great measure prayerless consistent with a holy life? To lead a holy life is to lead a life devoted to God, a life of worshiping and serving God, a life consecrated to the service of God. But how doth he lead such a life who doth not so much as maintain the duty of prayer? How can such a man be said to walk by the Spirit and be a servant of the Most High God? A holy life is a life of faith. 
the life that true Christians live in the world, they live by the faith of the Son of God. But who can believe that the man lives by faith who lives without prayer, which is a natural expression of faith? Prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is of life. And to say that a man lives a life of faith and yet lives a prayerless life is every whit as inconsistent and incredible as to say that a man lives without breathing. A prayerless life is so far from being holy that it is a profane life. He that lives so lives like a heathen, who calleth not on God's name. He that lives a prayerless life lives without God in the world. Number five, if you live in the neglect of secret prayer, you show your good will to neglect all the worship of God. He that prays only when he prays with others would not pray at all were it not that the eyes of others are upon him. He that will not pray where none but God seeth him manifestly doth not pray at all out of respect to God or regard to his all-seeing eye, and therefore doth in effect cast off all prayer. And he that casts off prayer in effect casts off all the worship of God, of which prayer is a principal duty. Now what a miserable saint is he who is no worshiper of God. He that casts off the worship of God in effect casts off God himself. He refuses to own him or to be conversant with him as his God. For the way in which men own God and are conversant with him as their God is by worshiping him. Number six, how can you expect to dwell with God forever if you so neglect and forsake him here? This your practice shows that you place not your happiness in God in nearness to Him and communion with Him. He who refuses to visit and converse with a friend, and who in a great measure forsakes him, when he is abundantly invited and importuned to come, plainly shows that he places not his happiness in the company and conversation of that friend. Now if this be the case with you respecting God, then how can you expect to have it for your happiness to all eternity to be with God and to enjoy holy communion with Him? Let those persons who hope they are converted, and yet have in a great measure left off the duty of secret prayer, in whose manner it is ordinarily to neglect it, for their own sake seriously consider these things. For what will it profit them to please themselves with that while they live, which will fail them at last and leave them in fearful and amazing disappointment? It is probable that some of you who have entertained a good opinion of your state and have looked upon yourselves as converts, but have of late in a great measure left off the duty, will this evening attend secret prayer, and so may continue to do for a little while after you are hearing this sermon, to the end that you may solve the objection which is made against the truth of your hope. But this will not hold, as it hath been in former instances of the like nature, so what you now hear will have such an effect upon you but a little while, when the business and cares of the world shall again begin to crowd a little upon you, or the next time you shall go out into young company, it is probable you will again neglect this duty. After the next frolic to which you go, it is highly probable you will neglect not only secret, but also family prayer. Or at least, after a while, you will come to the same pass as before, in casting off fear and restraining prayer before God. It is not very likely that you will ever be constant in persevering in this duty until you shall have obtained a better principle in your hearts. The streams which have no springs to feed them will dry up. The drought and heat consume the snow-watchers. Although they run plentifully in the spring, yet when the sun ascends higher with the burning heat, they are gone. 
The seed that is sown in stony places, though it seem to flourish at present, yet as the sun shall rise with a burning heat, will wither away. None will bring forth fruit with patience, but those whose hearts are become good ground. Without any heavenly seed remaining in them, men may, whenever they fall in among the godly, continue all their lives to talk like saints. They may, for their credit's sake, tell of what they have experienced, but their deeds will not hold. They may continue to tell of their inward experiences, and yet live in the neglect of secret prayer and of other duties. Number two. I would take occasion from this doctrine to exhort all to persevere in the duty of prayer. This exhortation is much insisted on in the Word of God. It is insisted on in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles 16, verse 11. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His face continually. Isaiah 62, verse 7. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence. In other words, be not silent as to the voice of prayer, as is manifest by the following words. And give him no rest till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Israel of old is reproved for growing weary of the duty of prayer. Isaiah 43, verse 22. But thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob. Thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. Perseverance in the duty of prayer is very much insisted on in the New Testament. As Luke 18 at the beginning, a man ought always to pray and not to faint. In other words, not to be discouraged or worry of the duty, but should always continue in it. Again, Luke 21, verse 36, Watch ye therefore and pray always. We have the example of Anna the prophetess set before us, Luke 1, verse 35, and so on, who, though she had lived to be more than a hundred years old, yet was not weary of this duty. It is said she departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Cornelius also was commended for his constancy in this duty. It is said that he prayed to God always, Acts 10, verse 2. The Apostle Paul in his epistles insists very much on constancy in this duty. Romans 12, verse 12, continuing instant in prayer. Ephesians 6, verses 18 and 19, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance. Colossians 4, verse 2, continue in prayer and watch in the same. 1 Thessalonians 5:17 Pray without ceasing to the same effect the apostle Peter 1 Peter 4 verse 7 Watch in the prayer thus abundantly the scriptures insist upon it that we should persevere in the duty of prayer which shows that it is of very great importance that we should persevere if the contrary be the manner of hypocrites as has been shown in the doctrine then surely we ought to beware of this leaven but here let the following things be particularly considered as more to perseverance in this duty. Number one, that perseverance in the way of duty is necessary to salvation and is abundantly declared to be so in the Holy Scriptures. As Isaiah 54, 5, Thou meetest him that rejoices and worketh righteousness, those that remember thee in thy ways. Behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned, and those is continuance, and we shall be saved. Hebrews 10, 38 and 39, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Romans 11, verse 22, Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise thou also shall be cut off. 
so in many other places. Many, when they think they are converted, seem to imagine that their work is done, and that there is nothing else needful in order to their going to heaven. Indeed, perseverance and holiness of life is not necessary to salvation, in the same way as a righteousness by which a right to salvation is obtained. Nor is actual perseverance necessary in order to our becoming interested in that righteousness by which we are justified. For as soon as ever a soul hath believed in Christ or hath put forth one act of faith in him, it becomes interested in his righteousness and in all the promises purchased by it. But persevering in the way of duty is necessary to salvation, is a concomitment and evidence of a title to salvation. There is never a title to salvation without it, though it be not the righteousness by which a title to salvation is obtained. It is necessary to salvation, as it is necessary consequence of true faith. It is an evidence which universally attends uprightness, and the defect of it is an infallible evidence of the want of uprightness. Psalm 125, 4 and 5. There such as are good and upright in heart are distinguished from such as fall away or turn aside. Do good, O Lord, to those that are good, and to them that are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them forth with the workers of iniquity. But peace shall be upon Israel. It is mentioned as an evidence that the hearts of the children of Israel were not right with God, that they did not persevere in the way of holiness. Psalm 78, verse 8, A generation that set not their hearts aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. Christ gives this as a distinguishing character of those that are his disciples indeed, and of a true and saving faith, that it is accompanied with perseverance and obedience to Christ's word. John 8, verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. This is mentioned as a necessary evidence of an interest in Christ. Hebrews 3, 14. We are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Perseverance is not only a necessary concomitment and evidence of a title of salvation, but also a necessary prerequisite to the actual possession of eternal life. It is the only way to heaven, the narrow way that leadeth to life. Hence Christ exhorts the church of Philadelphia to persevere in holiness from this consideration, that it was necessary in order to her obtaining the crown. Revelation 3.11 Hold fast that which thou hast, that no man may take thy crown. It is necessary not only that persons should once have been walking in the way of duty, but that they should be found so doing when Christ cometh. Luke 12.43 Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Holding out to the end is often made the condition of actual salvation. He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. In Revelations 2, verse 10, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Number 2. In order to your own perseverance in the way of duty, your own care and watchfulness is necessary. For though it be promised that true saints shall persevere, yet that is no argument that their care and watchfulness is not necessary in order to it, because their care to keep the commands of God is the thing promised. If the saint should fill of care, watchfulness, and diligence to persevere in holiness, that failure of their care and diligence would itself be a failure of holiness. They who persevere not in watchfulness and diligence persevere not in holiness of life. For holiness of life very much consists in watchfulness and diligence to keep the commands of God. 
It is one promise of the covenant of grace that the saints shall keep God's commandments, Ezekiel 11, 19, and 20. Yet that is no argument that they have no need to take care to keep these commandments or to do their duty. So the promise of God that the saints shall persevere in holiness is no argument that it is not necessary that they should take heed lest they fall away. Therefore, the Scriptures abundantly warn men to watch over themselves diligently and to give earnest heed lest they fall away. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit ye like men, be strong. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Hebrew 3, 12 to 14, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called a day, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Hebrews 4, verse 1, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. 2 Peter 3.17 Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. 2 John verse 8 Look to yourselves, that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Thus you see how earnestly the Scriptures press on Christians' exhortations to take diligent heed to themselves, that they fall not away. And certainly these cautions are not without reason. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.